Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This week, I'm joined by Rowan Junio Hartman from Cobber to talk about being a first-time founder. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Thursday the 30th of November. SBE Australia is kicking things up a notch for women entrepreneurs in Victoria. Thanks to a $100,000 grant from LaunchVic, they're launching their SBE advisory, which opened in New South Wales earlier this year in early 2024. The advisory is set to offer personalized, high-impact advice and solutions specifically for women-led businesses. This new advisory model, a partnership with BDO, is all about amplifying the growth of female-founded companies, addressing the start gap where only a tiny fraction of funding has historically gone to women-only startups. The advisory aims to ensure that women-led businesses are receiving much-needed independent, bespoke advice and more tailored solutions needed to amplify their growth and scale. Well, we don't always see it this way, but successful founders are people just like the rest of us. And that became all the more clear when it was announced that the Airtree and Antlerback startup Lived was set to close its doors. According to Startup Daily, Sally Medelecamp, the founder of the addiction management product, stated that the end of the startup began six months ago when she started facing serious health issues as well as other challenges. The startup was co-founded with Benjamin Wirtz, who left the project early on and was one of the first cohort companies from the Antler Incubator in 2020. The company's mission was to provide the 1 million Australians who struggle with alcohol or drug abuse, of which it is estimated only 20% receive treatment, an alternative way of seeking help. Another piece of meta-controversy has hit the news this week, with unredacted lawsuit excerpts alleging that the tech giant irresponsibly handled the presence of children under 13 using its services. TechCrunch reports that the suit filed last month alleges that Meta does not obtain or even attempt to obtain verifiable parental consent before collecting the data of users under the age of 13 who are officially not allowed to use their social media platforms. TechCrunch also reported that Meta has internally tracked the use of their social media platforms by under-13s for years, specifically noting in 2018 that 20% of 12-year-olds who used Instagram used it daily. The concern is that the company has chosen to turn a blind eye to the presence of minors on its services rather than risk limiting user numbers. Tough economic conditions continue to wreak havoc in the tech space as EV battery startup Our Next Energy announced cuts of 25% of its workforce. Reuters reports that the Michigan-based startup, helmed by former Apple executive Majibi Jaz, raised $300 million in Series B funding in February, raising its value to $1.2 billion. Despite the workforce cuts, which the company attributed to market conditions, our next energy is still focused on establishing a gigafactory in Michigan and developing a supply chain for batteries in North America. This announcement comes amidst a widespread downturn in EV sales due to rising interest rates. And finally, Tesla is suing Sweden. Yep, you heard that right. According to Wired, Tesla has filed a lawsuit against the Swedish state through the Swedish transport agency following a union blockade of number plates being sent to the EV company. The blockade originated from Tesla's refusal to sign a collective agreement with its mechanics. 
In Sweden, the vast majority of workers' rights are upheld through these collective agreements, and Tesla's refusal to sign has union bosses worried that this may set a dangerous precedent. As it stands, Tesla production has been halted in Sweden as a result of the blockade. CEO Elon Musk commented on the situation for the first time last week through a post on X calling it, quote-unquote, insane. And, well, you might say he would know. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. This show is all about building startups from the very beginning. And in this episode, we're going to hear a story about how an amazing first-time founder truly started from scratch. Rowan Junio Hartman is the founder and CEO of Cobber, Australia's first peer-to-peer delivery platform for bulkier secondhand goods. Rowan is going to share the steps that led to her creating Cobber and her learnings along the way. And if you aren't inspired by the end of this interview, you don't have a soul. Well, Rowan, welcome to the Bootstrap. Thanks, Scotty. Pleasure to be here. So why don't we start by having you tell us your potted history, your founder journey, How did you come to what you are doing now? Yes. So it started off with a problem that I constantly face. Seven years ago, I faced a really challenging situation, like domestic stuff. And I was moved in temporary housing and then public housing. And since then, becoming a single parent, I sourced my home with secondhand furniture, which makes sense because uh, I'm uh, on a lower income bracket. But quality furniture that's available out there in the digital marketplaces. I'm always, yeah, supportive of those. And it was a logistical barrier that I constantly face because I don't drive. I also don't have a family here in Australia that I can just easily call and, you know, come out to help me pick them up. It's constantly been something I faced. And I thought in the last 15 years, this kind of technology is available and yet no one is really addressing this niche. And I did some market validation. I went to seek for some expert feedback. And then I come across the CEO of uh, SRA, actually, he's the first person who validated my uh, problem that I wanted to solve. And the assignment that he gave me is to interview 50 people. And it turned out that there's actually a lot of people out there that are also experiencing the same challenges when it comes to logistical barriers in sourcing secondhand furniture. This covers so many different angles from marketplace to logistics to all of that. How did you get your head around all the d- the different elements that what you'd have to pull together to to build this? Initially, I just really wanted to solve the access problem. And because it's my lived experience and I feel how isolating it can be without any support or family here. Mm. That was my main thing. That was my main thing that I, I wanted to, to solve. And then mm. it turned out there's also a circular economy element to the problem that I'm solving uh, as a byproduct. Upon research that I've done, there's tons of like furniture within the household that could be circulated in the community. Mm. And yet the main thing that's holding people from doing that is the, again, the access issue. Not many have got access to a trailer or a larger vehicle. Mm. And then I thought, you know, if we could just streamline the process, engage peer support, somebody nearby can come out 
and help out and happy to get paid in their community. And, and we have a very good uh, financial model as well that's designed to incentivize drivers who have youths, vans and trailers. So, I've, and I thought, oh, oh, wow, this is actually might be bigger than I thought it initially was. And yes, this is it. This is what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> and I, I knew I always wanted to do something, some create some sort of impact. I just didn't know what it was mm. until I finally paid attention to that problem that I constantly face. So yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey for me. Absolutely. One thing that often I talk about with validating or when people are pitching ideas is I have a few like red flag phrases where people will say like, oh, it's a no brainer. And you're like, oh, is it? And one of them is no one is doing this because often they are. But as you were talking, I was just thinking, it's really quite amazing when we have such a big population of thrift stores and that whole, you know, like my, my young adult daughter's thrift and those things that somebody hasn't solved this already. So did you, did you, look to see if there was something similar before you started building? Yes, I have. And quite frankly, I couldn't find any anyone in Australia that's addressing this accessibility problem. And the traditional way to do it is you'd hire, like you'd bring a normal business, but they have a quite a different sort of model that is quite optimized, focused on their, yeah, their own sort of segment of the customer, but not for mm. Facebook Marketplace or Gumtree, despite the clear growing market. Mm. So what were the biggest hurdles that you faced in, I guess, trying to get conversations about this idea and to start make it happen? What were the biggest hurdles? One time I was... Uh, in the and this is like in the very beginning. So because I, w- I work occasionally for a uh, barrister in Victoria Square in Adelaide, and I did it manually. So I stand in the middle of Victoria Square and try and give the printed handouts uh, information to people, and. I like they they seem to think like I I get the feeling that well, this person is a bit crazy handing out you know that kind of feeling but I I gotta start somewhere in the beginning and then did you have to elbow big issue people out of the way <laughs> like you know <laughs> well, they would ignore me so they would ignore me like uh, like I'm a, a religious person handing out <laughs> like those uh, yeah. Or, or those contractors that give out vouchers from like free <laughs> delivery vouchers from other gig economy. So I tried to, I tried that attempt in the very beginning of my journey just to get, you know, people ask questions. And then I eventually, I learned about how easy to do it digitally using Airtable. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, yeah. Fantastic. And so did you do that yourself? You started like working with Airtable? Yes. Yeah, so, and then I've, I've also learned how to like keep the questions minimal because of people's attention span. So I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've only done six questions and I did send out like a, a chance to win a $30 Coles voucher. And I got around almost 500 uh, response from people, just from like Facebook groups and professional networks as well. Mom's group. Yeah. Different kinds of group, uh, buy and sell group, mm-hmm. upcycling mm-hmm. group, 
or student mm-hmm. groups. So it sounds like you really did a lot of pounding the pavement and having conversations with people to validate the idea. When you were given that assignment of talking to 50 people, what was that experience like? Yeah, like I said, I wasn't afraid to to approach people, even if like I initially would look like, uh, you know, or people would ignore me. So I think that's one of my key strengths as a, as a founder. I keep asking, even if the answer is mm. no, and mm. I don't take it personally. And sometimes no just means not today. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's, it's a bit easier. I, I, I want to say it's easy for me to do that, to approach people. Were there any kind of key learnings from that that changed elements of the idea or what, what was the, the findings, I guess, from that whole experience? Yeah. So I, I found that some people will ignore you. Even like, for example, in the very beginning of my journey, I created this GoFundMe just to start with something. And I've sent the link, messaged people on, on LinkedIn to gather their support. I've raised $350 for that GoFundMe in my ideation stage. Yeah. So I, the, I don't have problem approaching people. And I, yeah. I do accept the fact that sometimes they may say no. And Mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) What I love about your story is that the work that you did to get support early on, understand what people thought about the idea. Often, I think particularly with software, we can fall into this trap where we have an idea, we go and build it and do all the stuff and then show it to people and say, hey, you might like this, only you discover that they don't. And we then are having conversations trying to understand why they don't want the thing that we have rather than having the conversations first, which is so powerful. So how did you get connected with the, I guess, the wider startup ecosystem in Adelaide, on LinkedIn? What was that experience like for you and how did you find the reception? Yes, I I guess I'm always been kind of like an assertive person. And I think the driver of that is my passion for the problem that I'm trying to solve. I I tend to ask, I tend to take space. (laughs) So for example, I join a lot of networking here in Adelaide Mm -hmm. and some of my, three of my uh, shareholders, actually, I've met them via networking here in Adelaide. So I've just communicated to them the problem that I'm solving and just turns out that they've also experienced a problem. Yeah, so... (laughs) So that sort of propelled me into communicating it quite easily. But yeah, networking had been one of my tools and uh, shaped Mm -hmm. my success as well so far. At the startup uh, festival here in, there was a startup festival here in Adelaide last year by South Start and they invited the co-founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph. Yep. So I did ask for a photo with him in the be- yeah, beginning of my jur- journey and told him about what we're doing at Cuba. I said, uh, look, if Uber and Airtasker had a love child, that's us. That's what we do at Cuba. And uh, I got a, a few like a like giggle from the, the audience. They thought it was funny and a bit <laughs> clever. And the host was so gracious to bring me up stage. And I was wearing the Cuba T-shirt. Where did the Kaba name come from? So Kaba is a uh, Aussie slang for the word mate. It's uniquely Australian word yeah. meaning mate. So yeah. it directly correlates to my vision around engaging peer support nearby in the community. Also, it has to do with a bit of my in comparison, like with my culture in the Philippines. So we have this thousand-year-old culture where people would come out in the community to uh, help somebody lift 
scary something heavy and that mm. which is a house like so they build this yep. nipa house or made of bamboo and once it's finished the person needs to transport that to another place and people in the community would come out and help that person and there's a a, a photo available online as well so it's called bayanihan so similarly with our uh, Aussie culture of mateship so I got, yeah, that's where I got the idea from. And I thought Kaba was the perfect name for it. Um, yeah. Mm, mm, <laughs> do you have other people working with you on this now? Or Yeah. So initially it was just me from the ideation to, yeah, ideation and uh, creating the wireframes and all of that stuff. And then I found my co-founder. So I did a advertisement on one of those startup groups on Facebook. And uh, yeah, so I found him and he's currently our CTO and uh, yeah, he's quite experienced in establishing emerging technologies and also uh, extensive experience in building nonprofits and startups. And he is quite aligned with the vision and very supportive of the vision that I'm trying to create, which I feel like I'm very fortunate. Mm -hmm. Mm. So, so what has the uptake been like so far? Are people using it now? Is it still in the development stage? Where is it at? We're at revenue stage. So we just had our first transaction. And recently, last week, I spoke to the supervisor of Salvo. So we're going to trial it in one of their stores. Um, so my goal is to trial it because at the moment we have seven drivers onboarded. So we've got three in the sub southern suburbs where I live and then four in the nor northern suburbs. So my next goal is to talk to a supervisor in the northern suburb to uh, also yeah do the same thing. So the store supervisor in Edwardstown in the southern suburb said yes. Uh, and I did explain to, you know, to, to him. So he, he said initially, he said that they have uh, one person that they use. And then I said, Yes, I know. And I experienced it myself as a customer. So I walk in here, I wanted this wardrobe uh, taken home now today, but that's at the moment with the system that you have, that your one, your go-to guy have like 10 jobs in front of him. So mm. I may get my delivery in a couple of weeks time. Um, so this, this is just a bit of a, like an alternative. I said, like, you know, people want, wanted it delivered today. So we're, offering the on-demand infrastructure. And so, and then I, yeah, I said, it's pretty much like Uber where, you know, people can just use their mobile phone and they will know exactly how much they're going to charge for that delivery uh, for the distance as well. And the, the supervisor said, yes. Yeah, that's, again, that was another example of me sort of not afraid to ask. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I love the the initiative and that lack of fear. I've talked about this a few times on the podcast that like, I'll try and find ways of sorting things out without having to talk to people yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, make a phone call. And there are times where there's just no replacement for walking in, having a go and doing it practically, not just in theory. And one thing I love about what your story, I think illustrates for bootstrapping founders is that really you know starting locally working out how to validate it in that space that it's not just a you, you could have gone away and said i've got this idea for this app or or platform that can do this let's build it and uh, people do that thinking they're going to launch it like a 
Uber out of the box. And that that doesn't happen. It has to start locally. You've got to do your learning, do your validation. What what has been, I guess, the biggest learning curve for you so far? What's the thing that has been most outside of your experience that you've had to try and understand to make this work? Yeah, definitely the validation is quite important. It's really important to get that insight and understanding of what the market is like. Mm. And the only way to do that is to do your surveys, your research, and then you can have valid data as well that you can later in use for when you seek investment as well. Mm. I, I suppose I'm lucky because like I... Yes, so I'm quite inexperienced. However, one of the things that like I make sure that I learn the the right way to do it is I seek out other people who have experience, seek out for their what their thoughts are. And then mm. and I surround myself with yeah, so that's one one of the tools that I've used. So don't don't let inexperience stop you from doing anything. So the first thing that you need to do is to seek out your community, seek out your support and seek out those who have done it before. Yeah, networking are, is one of the tools as well where you can meet people, chat to them, tell them what you're working on, and you'll be surprised that yeah, you'll get a lot of insight from people mm. uh, in doing that. Working on my idea in the last year, it's been validated over and over and over. I even went to Melbourne as well and spoke to the director of Launch Vic about it, uh, about my idea. So I attended one of Startup Bootcamp's pitch event and networking mm. event in Melbourne. And uh, yeah, I got a good feedback from him as well. So th- that kind of exercise is a good sort of testing. Yeah, just talk to people in the o- ecosystem. And I believe that we have a strong sense of ecosystem community uh, in Australia and anyone starting out can utilize that to their advantage. As a female founder and a person of color, have you found that that has put any barriers in your way at, in trying to navigate the ecosystem? Uh, I think the only challenge that I get right now, so it, it does feel like it's really hard to get into the mainstream investment. So I got to be extra resourceful and yeah, leverage networking and just so lucky to find the right people who supports and believes in the vision and the idea. And Hmm. yeah, so pretty much bootstrapped it from uh, individual business people, small business people Hmm. here in Adelaide. But the, Hmm. the, the challenge at the moment, I think, is it's hard to get into the mainstream VC investment. Still, it seems to be mountains after mountains, extra challenging, but I do believe that I'll get there because of the tenacity that I have. And I do believe that talking to the right people will get me to places as well. So it doesn't mean that, you know, you may feel that you're not sort of for the mainstream sort of thing. Mm. And uh, Mm. also English is my second language as well. So sometimes like, for a norm, like for a, someone like yourself, for example, would probably just summon languages out of your, the right words out of your pocket. <laughs> I have to sort of, yeah, think the right, think the right words to say sort of thing. Oh. Uh, and then sometimes I totally go mental blank, <laughs> even in this discussion, <laughs> I think I, I do start to feel like I'm like, yeah, getting mental blank sometimes, but uh, that, that has been the challenge, but I don't let it stop me. 
I don't let mm. it stop me. I keep going and uh, I keep mm. building that merit and traction. And yeah. Mm. I think any idea that comes from a problem that you've personally experienced always has, it's easier to explain to other people. It's not, a, it's not a theoretical. It is like, I actually lived this. It's not just a great story. It is the the practicalities of that. And this, so there is a real social purpose to it as well. But I think, you know, in something that is essentially a marketplace, that that's always adds extra components to it because you need a few different types of users all aware of and willing to use your service in order for it to work. So from the the people that want the stuff delivered to the drivers to the shops, which one's been the hardest to get your head around or to get interests from? To be honest, I like in the beginnings, I, I think the challenge for me in the beginning was like, it, it feels like it's bigger than me. How am I going to pull this off sort of thing? Mm. But then when I actually just don't overthink and then just go for it, like for example, approaching Salvos initially, uh, and I thought that I needed some high level proposal to send to a Salvo CEO executive. This is how much Mm-hmm. This is what your stocks looks like last year. And this is how much it's going to cost you, save you money, da, da, da. all that kind of back research, that proposal to submit to them. Uh, I, I tend to ov- overthink it, but what it really is, mm. is just walk into the store and ask. I, I did exactly that just to test. And then I walk out the store. I got a yes. I walk out the store and I, 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 I thought, oh, wow, that wasn't so hard. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I suppose the insight for founders out there, that's just, yeah, go for it. Just ask. Yeah. So that's for the retail store, for the customers. It's so easy because they can relate to the problem. They they want mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. to solve their problem because no one's doing it mm-hmm. and they want it. They're so supportive of it and they can relate to the, mm-hmm. yeah, to the problem. It's It's pretty much quite practical for them. All we are doing is using the technology infrastructure to enable communities to, yeah, connect drivers that uh, are happy to do it and the customers. For the driver side, so literally going back to the customers as well. So you know how they always, uh, well, like with the expert that um, that I speak to anyway. So, you know, they'd say along the lines of you got to be able to prove the user acquisition cost. You got to be able to find some de- defensibility, you know, because it, it's a marketplace, two-sided marketplace. And it does save me user acquisition costs because like I haven't even done mm. any like full-on marketing at the moment. It's just everything, everything at the moment just spreads out via word of mouth. And mm-hmm. yeah, and so far we've got 160 people in the app that had provided all their you know details and are ready to use it whenever they wow. need to. And then on the uh, driver side, so we haven't done any heavy marketing at the moment as well. And so what I did was I created this pre-registration form and yeah, put it on our digital uh, channels. And like people just sign up mm. to it and on, on the website as well. So I suppose they say that like, if it's a job opportunity, people will come. Yeah. That's yeah. True. So we get some pre-registration from Queensland and Melbourne as well, but we haven't actually 
launched in other states apart from Adelaide at the moment. So we're literally mm. just soft launching and trialing things out. And we've only just performed our first revenue, completed that transaction. And how did that feel? Oh, it, it feel, initially it feels like it's bigger than me. Like, oh my God, how am I going to pull this off? But then as I <laughs> dip my toes in the water, everything just falls nicely. Yeah. Mm. Into place. Mm. It's a bit of an up and down, but when I get those mini goals, milestones, I get such high as well. I, I can see it as something that Definitely the word of mouth factor is going to be a big piece of that. Like as people start realizing there's an alternative because you've got a particular use case that you experienced where this was an issue for you, but there would be a number of different types of people that need that help simply because maybe they don't have a trailer or want to wait for a big delivery. I'll give you an example for the word of mouth situation that I, I found. Like a driver signed up and she's from the country area in Brisbane. And this lady has got her own user base in that, you know, like in, if you live in a small country town where everyone knows everybody. Yep. So she's the go-to person yep. for that delivery. Uh, so she signed up. I rang her, gave her a ring. Love it. And I asked, oh, how did you find out about Koa? I got really curious because like you're literally out of, uh, you know, somewhere in the country. And she said that somebody told her about Koa. And wow. I was like, oh, wow. And they said, she said, the customer said, oh, look, check this out. They're only starting out, but they, they could be uh, the next big thing. I'm now that driver. We plan for her to be our ambassador in that area. So because it's such an isolated town, right? So she's going to be the go-to yeah. person. So what, what we're doing is we're just piggyback riding on her existing customers. Percent. It's a very clever, organic way to build which I think as a bootstrapping just makes so much sense. And often our plans get too big too mm. quickly and then really hard to execute. I see some business plans where it's like they've mapped out the global empire, but not how it gets started. And then they're looking for someone to fund the global empire when they haven't actually proven the, mm -hmm. the concept. So the way that you have that you are doing this, I think is a really great case study for people that feel, you know, like they've got an idea, but they wouldn't know where to start. Like, did you know that you were capable of doing this? I, I, I'm blown away by what you have accomplished. Did you, do you have previous experience with startups or how? Uh, yeah, how I don't have any previous experience. <laughs> All I really wanted was an app to help me with this problem. And I realized, I love it. Oh God, I have to build a business model around it too, for, for this to, you know, be feasible. I, yeah, just push myself to learn the skills as I go. I've uh, collaborated with those who knows or have done it before. I, I literally started the company from nothing. All I had was, well, okay, so I participate in this randomly. Every now and then I participate in this clinical trial studies. It's a randomized placebo. You might not get the real thing, the real drug. Yeah. So I got paid $5,000 for that. And then I use that $5,000 to contact our devs, our current dev team now. In the beginning, I contacted them uh, from uh, overseas. But, I, you know, with projects, they tend to like, they tend to stop. Like, what if you can't pay them anymore? That's how it works. Like, it yeah. comes in stages. And yeah, so, so I knew that I'm going to run out of money. And I, what I mm. did was I pitched the idea to one of my, 
law student mate in uh, university and she experienced the problem as well. So she had to hire $150 of youth to uh, pick up something, something oh, heavy no. that doesn't fit in her car. Uh, she really liked the idea. We created 100,000 shares and sold $2.50 per share and created those shares to help me complete the product development. But before that, she went to her accountant. So she's willing to invest $5,000, went to her accountant to seek some financial advice. And then she came back to me and said, oh, by the way, my accountant wanted to invest as well. And my ex-husband. So between those three people, I've managed to raise $20,000. And that allowed me to complete the product. So I've got a product in the Play Store and in the App Store. And that's quite phenomenal for a gig economy technology startup. By starting out in the way that you are, I think you're minimizing a lot of the the risk of growth because you're validating in that contained space. And that's what I was talking about before, where people think they're going to launch something that will just take off everywhere. And that has a lot of problems attached to it, particularly with something like this, where being on the ground, having it happening around you where you can build those relationships and then make decisions about how you scale it, build your waiting lists in other spaces as you go. There's a lot to be said for that in terms of right now, it's all still learning. You're validating and learning as you go. And the more that you can do that and then apply that to growth, the more the more economically you'll be able to do that, the more likely it is that you can bootstrap that growth as well. But that is an amazing story from a medical trial. Yeah. I love That's it. That's all literally I all I had. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So if you were talking to somebody who hasn't done anything like this before, doesn't have a big bank account to draw from, and has an idea like this, what advice would you give them about where to start? Uh, you got to start with the problem and you got to sort of reflect. Because uh, for me, it was uh, a lived experience and the pain level of pain that I was experiencing is probably... 10 out of 10, in my opinion, because, you know, furniture and being a mom is is important, right? So uh, I need that single bed for my son, for example. We need the, mm. that dining table, mm. for example. It's it's just essential. It's quite frustrating for me not having any help. So I, I focus on my that particular problem. And so people can do the same thing. They can really reflect on is the problem sort of on the le- level of or scale of one to 10 be enough for people to buy a pain relief, as an example, or, mm-hmm. or is scratching mm-hmm. it good enough <laughs> yeah, as an example. So re- really reflect on the problem. And then the next step would be to find out how many people out there are also experiencing the same problem. And that's when the, hmm. the market validation com- can come in, the minimum problem solution. And you can do that by uh, creating surveys, questionnaires, and make sure to capture like the level of their problem and whether they would pay for a service that would solve that problem. Um, Amazing. Yeah. So that's the that's the first step in doing it. And if you had one piece of advice for a brand new founder, what would it be? Never, ever, ever, ever feel small. Never, ever, ever feel small. As a first timer in experience, you'll find that in the 
ecosystem, a lot of people will, or experts, you, you'll be sort of talking to a lot of experts and you, you'll tend to feel small and you got to change that mindset and you got to remember that it's your business as well because the the power dynamic tend to get shifted sometimes is is what i feel and as a woman women of color yeah we tend to have that feeling feel really small and just don't forget your your capacity or uh, capability and your uh talent and most importantly focus on the problem that you're solving nothing else matters hmm. so much to take away from that discussion rowan thank you so much for your time thank you so much scotty You can find Rowan Junior Hartman on LinkedIn, and you can find out more about Cobber, that's C-O-B-B-E-R, at cobber.app. And that's it for the bootstrap for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find the show. Even better, share the show with a friend or anyone who will listen. I'm sure your mum would really enjoy it. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the Bootstrap Startups from Scratch. And we're working on our social media presence, but for now you can find the product bus on most platforms and interact with the Bootstrap post there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the product bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mix by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch. Swivel.